You're listening to Democracy's Future, the podcast that takes on the big crises and questions facing democracy in America and around the world. I'm Julie Sook. And I'm Zephyr Tichia. We're both professors at Fordham Law School. A major threat to democracy is the rise of private power. It's something I wrote about in my recent book, Break Em Up, and it's something I've seen in my experience as a political candidate. I share with our guest a real concern about the ways in which governing power can exist outside of formal government. So when someone writes about uh, Tyranny, Inc., how private power crushed American liberty and what to do about it, and is also billed, quote, the right winger calling for social democracy, unquote, in the New York Times, you invite that person on your podcast as soon as possible. So we're very pleased that Saurabh Amari said yes and is joining us today. In addition to writing Tyranny, Inc., which we'll focus on in this episode, Saurabh Amari also founded the online magazine The Compact and was formerly the op-ed editor of The New York Post. He was also a columnist and editor for The Wall Street Journal and has written for The New York Times, The Washington Post, The New Republic, The Spectator, Chronicle of Higher Education, Times Literary Supplement, Commentary, Dissent, The American Conservative... I could go on, but I'll stop there. So Rob is also a self-proclaimed, radically assimilated immigrant, originally from Iran, and his previous books are about identity politics, The Unbroken Thread, and The Arab Spring, Arab Spring Dreams, with a foreword by Gloria Steinem. Welcome, So Rob. I'm really thrilled to have you join us today on Democracy's Future. Oh, thank you both for having me. I wanted to just jump in with your account of the subtitle of your book, How Private Power Crushed American Liberty. You call it Tyranny, Inc. And it would be great if you could just walk us through what your definition of tyranny is and how we got here. Sure. So I use the classical definition of tyranny, which is government that doesn't function for the good of the whole, but rather for the good of a few or one person. And it's geared toward private self-aggrandizement or um, private self-enrichment. And so that, that's that's tyranny. And, uh, you know, government is government. But um, what I argue in the book is that um, in the United States today, we have the rise of a kind of system of privatized tyranny where um, enveloped by coercion, but this is coercion that um, affects us in our lives as workers, as consumers, and precisely because this zone of life in our e- economic discourse and much of our broader public discourse is framed as being private, it is therefore not subject to um checks and balances, to democratic give and take, to legal justiciability, all the things that we associate with a decent political order. And as you noted, I mean, my background is in a complicated way from the from the political right. Um, I mean, I, I, was a, I was a college Trotskyist, but that was long ago. <laughs> um, especially on the right, uh, people tend to think that there is this place called government, which is, uh, you know, the state, and it's definitely coercive. You know, they, you can get a ticket for double parking your car or you can go to jail if you don't pay your New York City or state or federal taxes. And that's where government happens. Or from the right, 
you might say that tyranny can only be by the government, mm-hmm. whereas it sounds like you're really talking about oligarchy. Mm-hmm. And specifically, there's a real focus on coercion of employees and workers by corporations and uh, coercion that persists because the law and the government permit it. In, in fact, perhaps even encourage it. And I was wondering, uh, do you agree with that characterization? And can you say more about that? Oh, absolutely. Um, and and this goes to another point. I mean, as I said, conservatives typically especially think of government as the one coercive entity. And then there is this other zone of life called the market, which is, uh, you know, sm- characterized by spontaneity and individual choice and therefore couldn't... Or by definition, non-coercive. Or just definitionally non-coercive, when in fact, A, it is coercive, and that coercion in very Mm -hmm. complicated ways is structured by by law, which is to say govern action. The market is not this you know, spontaneous organic thing that happens. It's a result of how we structure our laws and, you know, kind of public sphere. I mean, this coercion in the, in the private sector, in the market, is especially pronounced. It's the, I think it's the most fundamental one, is the uh, coercion typically meted out by employers, the relatively kind of small share of society that owns most of productive and financial assets, and the asset-less many people who cannot reproduce themselves, cannot subsist, but by selling their labor power as wages. Can can we actually tell the story as a story about law? You spent some time talking about Lochner and that line of cases in particular, the way that the Supreme Court has always defended as a constitutional matter uh, the liberty of contract and business and property rights. But I wondered if you can say a little bit more about Uh, the evolution, because certainly you acknowledge that the period of constitutional protection, absolute constitutional protection of contract and property somewhat ended with a new deal, uh, but there are many other mechanisms in law uh, that you identify as being coercive or making banal a whole range of relationships that are coercive. Yeah, so, I mean, Lochner, I mean, I I, I feel... I have a law degree, but I never practiced law, and I sort of feel embarrassed <laughs> saying this to a, a pair of, uh, of law professors as eminent as, <laughs> as, 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 as you two. But uh, the Lochner case itself was uh, the Supreme Court striking down infamously um, a New York state law limiting uh, Baker's work weeks to 60 hours. And so the, the court reasoned that this is a violation of the sort of the sanctity of contract or liberty of contract, which it framed as a right, as sacred and as inviolable as, like, say, freedom of speech in, in the, you know, in the, in the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. And as you said, you know, we had this series of um, uh, setbacks for that regime that began with the New Deal era, and so that we developed a, a more nuanced legal regime that took into account the disparities in bargaining power between the typical employee and the typical employer and allowed government and also civil society in the form of labor unions to check the power of employers to to coerce employees. But as many legal scholars argue, and as I report in the book, in many ways we've returned to the pre-New Deal, pre-reform status quo ante, the, the, the regime that prevailed in the 19th century and the first few decades of the 20th century. Um, one example I give is what's called scheduling precarity, which is something that's very pervasive 
in the service and retail industries, I tell the story of a woman who's a restaurant worker, you know, used to the irregularity in her schedule until uh, she had a baby. Um, and suddenly, of course, the, the child makes all sorts of demands. And yet this irregular scheduling that's used, especially it's, it's human resources algorithms, it's all designed to minimize labor costs. You know, typically if you if you have that equitable distribution, more equitable distribution of power in the workplace, uh, both the employer and the employee take a hit when there are periods of low demand. Uh, but what they've tried to do now in the ser- service and retail industries is to put basically all the costs associated with periods of low demand when people don't come to the shop or to the restaurant to shift all of that onto the back of employees. And they do that by basically doing what's called clopening shifts. That's when uh, the employer is only called in for like the first two hours, go home for a couple of hours, and then come back in for the closing of the shift or not giving them their schedule until just a couple of days before they're supposed to work or canceling shifts that they had expected to work. And that has all sorts of ramifications for the life of a human being who is, you know, people aren't just machines who can just show up at a moment's notice. Uh, They have children, they have elder care issues, they have health care issues. And and, and our kind of neo-Lochnerist labor law regime allows all of that. I mean, it's perfectly, I mean, there are reform efforts, for example, in Massachusetts, a few, few states, but on the whole, it's this is basically back to Lochner. Hey, it's liberty of contract and you showed up. If we could just zero in on what the problem is with scheduling precarity. I mean, on one level, we we are the kind of people who could show up on a moment's notice if we actually had childcare, for example. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a real problem. The, the problem with scheduling precarity is uh, we don't have elder care. We don't have childcare. So even if we could show up, we can't show up. And that suggests like a lack of, public policy infrastructure. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think part of the story is also maybe decline of unions. I was just wondering what you think is perhaps the cause and or solution mm. to the problem of scheduling precarity as one of many examples that you uh, highlight in your account of coercion. Yeah, I mean, c- certainly the inaccessibility of childcare and elder care uh, is a factor in this. But I would argue that just... Uh, even if some of those, you know, kind of um, supports were there from a kind of public policy standpoint, there's a study by a pair of then University of California sociologists, Harknett and Schneider, uh, who did the most comprehensive study on this. And there are other kind of problems that scheduling precarity introduces. So for example, scheduling precarity is also linked to wage precarity, right? People want to work. And so if you kind of constantly cancel their shifts, they're they're left at the end of a two-week period with not enough money to make rent or whatever other obligations they have. It also has a psychological toll. About a third of U.S. service workers have less than a a week's notice of their schedule, Harknett and Schneider fine. And not surprisingly, those workers also tend to report uh, sleeping poorly, having uh, psychological issues, uh, all sorts of, it, it makes sense, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, all the th- three of us sitting here are typically used to, you know, we're all white collar people, you know, you, you, if you need to take, I, I'm a journalist, if I need to take an hour to deal with some issue, I can. Imagine all of that being taken away from you um, and having a child. Mm-hmm. It's not surprising. And the, and the children of workers subjected to this are also more likely to misbehave in school, are also more likely to act out have feelings of guilt and so on and so forth. And the causal links aren't that hard to, you know, draw. 
parents don't have regular time to spend with their kids at dinner time or whenever, mm-hmm. um, and it's always chaotic, then children suffer. I mean, it's not. This is a. Uh, it seems pretty obvious to me. So when you use this language of tyranny, it's powerful language, right? It's it suggests that, and you've started to hint at this, but I want you to really draw this out. Um, any use of tyranny suggests, of course, a, a vision of what its opposite means. You're not just talking about material deprivations, but something lost in human freedom. So there's been a multi-century debate and discussion about what constitutes human freedom, what the nature of that freedom that we should seek is. And this is, of course, a podcast about the future of democracy. So I want to talk more about the particular harms and go back to private equity and other issues. But before we get there, can you just talk about what your vision of the opposite of tyranny is, the, the potential liberty that uh, that we might seek? Your listeners may notice, on, on the one hand, you know, there's a kind of very, um, you know, frankly, Marxian language, right, that there's this one relationship that especially structures a coercive society, and that between the assetless many versus the asset-rich few. That's a part of my thinking, but, uh, you know, readers of the book will encounter. There's also that kind of um, classical and 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 Christian element, and so my definition of freedom is in part comes from this pre-modern tradition that says freedom is a, a, a con- you know at, at the individual level is the ability to do what one ought to do uh, to to fulfill one's human nature, um, and human beings in this definition are fundamentally we are social creatures, we're political creatures, we thrive in community. And in the modern world, one way we've tried to preserve our social and political nature over and against the forces of of the unrestrained market society is through democracy. Modern democracy is in some ways a reaction to the rise of market society. So I I draw especially here from Karl Polanyi, the Austrian-born economic historian. And then there's an American historian, wonderful Charles Sellers, who wrote a Jacksonian history called The Market Revolution, in which he shows, I think, really convincingly and with an immense amount of granular detail, that Jacksonian democracy was a reaction of the populace against the rise of the kind of Hamiltonian market state. So to bring this down to to our time and in sort of ordinary um, brass tacks, a lot of people on the right are worried about the fact that people are no longer getting married, that a lot of people are church attendance is down, total fertility is down. Um, and these, I think, are legitimate concerns to have. The fact that people report not having any friends, everyone's alienated. These are legitimate concerns to have. What I think they miss is how those uh, effects of the loss of true freedom, the sense of fulfilling our social nature, is linked to how we structure our economy, the material substrate of economic relations that condition how people feel, whether they, they feel secure enough to want to form a marriage or to have children. They, whether they have time on the weekends to go to a, a, a church or synagogue or ma- whatever house of worship they you, know, you would want them to attend. So that's the uh, idea of freedom that I think maybe c- conservatives typically are good at um, diagnosing the effects, but not the cause, potentially the, the economic causes. This is interesting to me because you're suggesting Polanyi, not Republicanism. 
So sort of, uh, you know, the tradition that is increasingly on the rise within the Democratic Party and also across is the antitrust Brandeisian Republican revival and understanding of decentralized power and freedom from domination. Mm-hmm. But but I hear I, I heard in the first part of your answer some real correspondence with that. And then the second part of an answer resistance to that. So so how would you how would you say there's a real difference between your vision and a Republican, small R Republican vision um, which again, by no means needs needs to be on the left, but has been uh, increasingly rising on the left in the last um, uh, eight to ten years. Yeah. So within the American tradition, I'm a you know Arthur Schlesinger style using Hamiltonian means for Jeffersonian ends, right? Jeffersonian ends in the sense of you know having. A, a ordinary citizens having the ability for that small R Republican self-government to again to fulfill our social and political nature and not just be you know miserable wage earners and so on. Um, but in order to get there in modern industrial conditions, I think the best that we've done was during the uh, thir- three decades or so after World War II, which was a combin the, the Brandeisian element that you mentioned of of. Uh, decentralization was a part of it. But there's also the kind of more Galbraithian element of recognizing Hmm. that, you know, industrial society will have, you know, large institutions that in in many markets it's rational, uh, you know, to have maybe two or three players uh, at most. You know, there, there are areas where lots of small firms come up and go and so on, and it's very dynamic. But like, you know, airlines will always be typically you know, um, and more rationally, just like going to be like two or three or uh, because of network effects, or you're not going to have tons of tire manufacturers in people's backyards, you're going to have a relatively few. So if that's the case, then the Galbraithian tradition, which I think is is closer to the heart of the New Deal would say, fine, you're going to have big on one side, then there should be counter the countervailing power of people on the other side of that market. So if we're dealing with, um, you know, a, a regional electricity monopoly, then there should be a government-supported, uh, you know, consumer co-op on the other side to countervail the power that uh, that monopoly would have. Or if we're going to have, you know, one or two large employers in manufacturing, then we're going to have a big, big union on the other side, raising up the power of of um, employees in that market or industry. Uh, so interesting. I was going to uh, ask you about Michael Lind later because, of course, Lind, uh, you know, represents this, you know, real vision of centralized power as against what the um, neo Brandeisians, of whom I count myself one, <laughs> uh, not re- recognizing fully, of course, that there are going to be some industries, but that they're the uh, that need to be concentrated, and therefore you need to have significant non discrimination rules, but a little less faith and comfort in um, the centralized private power. And it sounds like you have a lot of faith and comfort in centralized regulated private power. Is that fair? Yeah, I, I would say I, you know, I'm of the tradition of having um, highly regulated, highly unionized political economy. Um, and uh, the high regulation by definition means you have these kind of stable players who encounter each other you know, in the kind of tripartite model of 
you know, once a year, you know, government sits down with industry leaders, uh, with with unions, with consumer representatives, or these kinds of boards, like bipartisan boards of, you know, for, for any number of things, uh, the New Deal created these bipartisan boards that would mm. oversee elements of the economy. That said, um, you know, I, 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 I don't think it's, it's such a strict either or between between Brandeisians and, and Galbraithians, I think uh, certainly, for example, in, the, in, in big tech, with respect to big tech, we're seeing there's all sorts of um, monopolistic practices to which the answer is, frankly, kind of break them up. Um, <laughs> so I'm with you on, in, in discrete areas. So, so let's, speaking of discrete areas, before we get to um, uh, a few other questions, can you just, Tell us a little bit. Uh, we haven't given you a full chance to tell your horror stories. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, and I horror think horror stories also... are always good. <laughs> yeah. So, what is going on with private equity and our basic services? Sure. I mean, I think this is the, this is the chapter of the book um, that I'm personally most proud of. It's the one that has the most amount of kind of original reporting, which is the fact that uh, increasingly. Um, since the financial crisis, we've had the taking over of, of what used to be considered public goods, eminently public goods, namely emergency services and firefighting firms by privateers, by companies that do this privately. Of course, in the long history of the United States, firefighting used to be a private activity and it became incre- incredibly uh, competitive. But then one of the great innovations of the modern age was to uh, provision firefighting in a social way. Uh, it's more, more rational and it's more humane because it's you, you don't tie the element of profit to you know saving people's lives and homes. Um, but anyway, now we've had we had we have uh, lots you know about in rural areas, lots of firefighting is now done by private firms. Uh, a lot of emergency EMT firms, uh, including in New York City, are privately owned and and as bad as that is, a lot of those firms that are private uh, firefighting and emergency services firms are now being taken over by hedge funds and private equity. Why is that bad? Because of the way hedge funds and private equity uh, manage firms, which is not in the sort of usual capitalist way of you invest in a firm. Okay, you make some profits and you, you know, uh, some of it is goes to shareholders to reward them for their risk, but you retain enough that you reinvest in the business so that you maintain its capital stock. You know, you can hire more workers and grow. That's not what private equity does. They typically manage for cash flow. They kind of extract as much cash as they can out of a firm after having levered it up with debt as much as possible. I know, Zephyr, you know this all too well. So I apologize for preaching to the choir, as it were. <laughs> Preach! Preach! So this is bad in itself. And so what you have is these private equity-owned firefighting companies, because they don't invest in the firm, they have trucks that don't work or emergency trucks, that ambulances uh, that don't work because they don't invest in them. Workers that have been working, you know, two 24-hour shifts back-to-back and are utterly exhausted. Um, they have they don't invest enough in drugs, so then the, the EMTs will steal drugs from public from other hospitals uh, because they have to in order to do their jobs. So that's bad enough. And then also, I mean, in, on the consumer end, they, they bill really aggressively. So I tell the story of this Arizona cub poll, you know, working class, their mobile home 
burned down and then uh, the public fire department put out the fire. But then this private firm called Rural Metro showed up and just kind of did a vague cleanup afterward. And it's that firm that handed them a $20,000 bill. And they said, hey, wait a second, we thought our taxes covered this. And the the firm said, no, that we had a fire subscription plan to which you were not subscribed. And so we have to bill you. Um, All of that is bad enough. But what I reveal in the chapter is a lot of public pension funds of emergency service workers, the firefighters, EMTs, who 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 are you know work for the public volunteer departments, their own public pension plans are investing in the very private equity firms that are in the business of privatizing these firms. So in other words, every time a firefighter in a public department contributes to his or her pension plan, he or she is marginally acting to divest him or herself from <laughs> from their job, right? Like uh and uh, yeah, so I mean, I, I do an estimate just looking at like 10 counties and state public pension systems across the country. I mean, this is just a, a drop in the bucket. And I estimate that, uh, you know, over the past decade, a billion dollars, just those 10 jurisdictions have invested a billion dollars in private equity firms that are in the business of privatizing their own public workers' jobs. So, so Rob, your horror story has me horrified. And this is why I would like to talk about the what to do about it part of your book. Because one thing that did surprise me is that you're very skeptical about law and you say that the solution really has to be politics and democracy. But at the same time, the way that you're describing the way that power structured, I have trouble seeing how to overcome that by using politics and the democratic structures we currently have. Yeah, that's a great question. So a lot of the um, diagnosing and horror storytelling in the book draws on legal scholars, right, who are looking at the kind of intersection of law and political economy. But then toward the end of the book, I say, you know, some of these problems do have sort of discrete legal fixes. So, for example, there's a chapter on the abuse of Chapter 11 bankruptcy, Mm -hmm. the fact that uh, large debtors uh, have become very good at using the Chapter 11 process to... um, shield themselves and the, the the assets of their um, shareholders from being gotten at by victims if they're, they're like you yeah, have talking about tort victims like the Johnson and Johnson powder case or tort victims in terms of the uh, Purdue Pharma and its misdeeds with respect to the opioid crisis and I think something like that you know the way that we assign for example bankruptcy cases to federal bankruptcy judges, the fact that it's become very easy to judge shop, as happened in the case of Purdue, that's something that, like, there could be law reform, you know? Yeah. And, and, and there are really uh, great law professors, legal scholars who've been pushing for this. It's now potentially before the Supreme Court. Yeah, but I guess my question is more not just those legal fixes for the specific problems, but how are you going to do the shift in power mm. every moment of the book? It seems like the solution that pops up is we need to restructure power. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need unions or maybe churches. I, I mean, at whatever the problem is, it seems like there's a way in which uh, public law structures power uh, that makes it 
almost inevitable that we end up with these problems. And so I, I totally get that you're saying that the legal fix is that the people working in the antitrust space or people working in, on specific problems uh, may not be uh, all that um, helpful in the long run. But I guess I'm really just trying to figure out how you think we can shift the power because it seems like that's where you're pointing. Yep. So you have a great question. Then, like, if, if not those legal fixes, then, then what? And I, I just think that um, the core of the New Deal was raising up the power of people subjected to market coercion. Absolutely. Consumers, workers, um, and 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 democrat small d democratic power and that's that's been lost mm-hmm. and so for me I mean I, I I ultimately I you know don't believe in replacing market society as such I just think we should try to ameliorate its worst effects um, uh, that's what we want to get back to and so the the core of that is the 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 one pivot I and mean, there are other things you can do but the one pivot is is raising up union density that is the share of workers who belong to labor unions and so the story i tell of why we lost union density why we went from in 1945 a third of the private economy workforce being unionized to today you know barely 6% is because the Wagner Act was weak to begin with because it organizes uh, uh, shop by shop rather than sectoral bargaining across industry or across region. Um, And even those protections that it did provide for collective bargaining were then chipped away at by the Taft-Hartley Act in 1947 and then by, you know, a thousand cuts from uh, mainly conservative Supreme Court uh, decisions as well as National Labor Relations Board decisions. And so... The way I think to to think about this is, can we have a Wagner Act 2.0? And I don't know what it would hmm. be called. Maybe it'll be called the, I don't know, in, in my most idealistic moments, I think like the the Warren Hawley Act or the Warren Vance Act or something like that, which is sectoral bargaining, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And just doing away with the kind of accumulation of uh, anti-worker, uh, you know, because this is all statutory law. As the resident anti-monopolist on the (laughs) the podcast, I can't help but to say that I completely agree with you. And I think we're talking about the second part of Roosevelt's New Deal, Mm -hmm. which was much more focused on both union power and antitrust and decentralized power, as opposed to the first Mm. part, which was focused on a very top-down vision. Mm -hmm. Um, And Roosevelt recognizing, I know this is not a debate, I'm just getting my debate point in, (laughs) Roosevelt recognizing um, the rigidity and limits of um, of a wholly top-down approach. Mm. So give give me an example of what that would mean in 2023, um, like a specific reform. Well, frankly, it's starting to happen. I mean, Mm. I completely agree with you on the labor front, you know, that we clearly need much stronger um, labor protections and organizing protections and protections that are representative of the current economy. Mm -hmm. Probably stronger than we've ever had, given the kind of power and centralization and coercion that you're talking about in your book. And then the other part, you know, if you think of labor as the tool for um, organizing workers, mm-hmm. antitrust is the tool for disorganizing capital coercion. Mm. Mm. So the other part is um, tools that make coordination among capital in order to coerce harder. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's um, that's a combination of rules, what you see with Lena Khan, Jonathan Cantor, 
a combination of new rules and cases, mm-hmm. um, and then new laws. Now, here's why I, in a way, to to Julie's question of where, well, how do we get there? I also the other signs of why we may be pushing on a half open door is the the rethinking of the so-called Washington consensus or the neoliberal yeah. order, whatever you want to call it, yeah. that's happening it's at, extraordinary. at the core of the Democratic Party, uh, which is the which is a real party of government, right? It's You have a regional, messy rump party of the Republicans, and then you have a party of government that is the serious party of government. And someone like Jake Sullivan gave that speech uh, this summer when she said the Washington consensus has been a, in a failure. And we are, you know, I used to be, in my in my trot days, and I, I went to <laughs> college at University of Washington in Seattle, and that was the heyday of the what was called the anti globalization movement. And it was often focused; it wasn't focused on globalization's effects on domestic workers. It was about like sweatshop conditions in in places to which we were shifting manufacturing and so on. Um, but nevertheless, you know, some of the insights of some of the insights and slogans of that era are now things that people like Jake Sullivan are also mouthing or or you know uh, Rana Farukhar the the financial times columnist or uh, Martin Wolf you know the, the deeply establishmentarian people can sometimes now sound like anti-globalization activists from the late 90s and early 2000s um, because we're going to go to a world of, of more limited geopolitical blocks of reshoring manufacturing or nearshoring manufacturing. And all of that will tend toward also tighter labor markets. So I think we're maybe at the cusp of, an, of a new age of worker power whose effects we're only feeling now in these kind of seemingly limited, oh, there's like Starbucks here and, and Delta employees and air attendants and so on. But that, that may just be the beginning. Now, I have friends in the labor movement who are much more pessimistic, who say, no, 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 like when, when, when the real battle royal comes, you, do, you can't even begin to imagine how much capital has been accumulated over the, in the good days of neoliberalism, good days for capital that they can put to effect in terms of, you know, remember the fight that Uber and Lyft put up against uh, that proposition in California, I forget the number, um, that was 200 million. It was like the largest amounts ever spent on one of these ballot referenda in California. Imagine that times a gazillion when the when the political battle really starts. So let's talk a little bit. If we're entering a new age of worker freedom and power, uh, which you suggest, what does it look like politically? Are the alignments, I mean, it seems like you were gesturing at alignments um, breaking down or reorganizing and uh, not familiar in terms of left, right, or liberal conservative in the United States. Do you see new coalitions forming? A little bit. I actually, I still, you know, this is going to sound strange, but I still think most of the the reform energy will come from the Democratic Party because it's a party of government. You know, you have one party that instinctively thinks like government is illegitimate, that will never be easily the the kind of reforming party. And even, you know, I always point as a kind of example, the fact that um, there is this tradition in the Republican Party represented by Eisenhower and Nixon, which made its peace with the New Deal and not only made its peace, but expanded the New Deal's logic in new areas and useful ways for the country like the EPA. Um, That said, that tradition has been battered by kind of two generations of Reagan, Paul Ryanism, Reaganism, Paul Ryanism. Um, and 
you know, being on the right, I see the degree to which, uh, you know, the Republican Party, even though it is garnering ever more working class votes, that's a reality. Trump won the highest marginal share of union households for a Republican nominee in more than uh, three decades. He consolidated that block and added to it increasingly working class people of color in 2020. All that being true, the power base of the Republican Party remains small and regional capital. What I mean by that is the people who have the greatest voice. It's not even like the few billionaires kind of you hear about, uh, you know, often like right wing billionaires. It's like the guy who owns a chain of tire distribution centers in the Research Triangle of North Carolina and goes to rubber chicken dinners extolling the self-made man. That's the sort of most powerful person inside the Republican Party, and they are legion. And so I'm a little bit skeptical about to the degree to which, notwithstanding the realignment in voters, that that will translate into realignment of policy on the right. That said... I am definitely noticing there are green shoots of individual lawmakers on the right who are, you know, serious about political economy, whether they come from it from a national security point of view or because they themselves have a working class background and kind of get unions. But at any rate, they're serious about it and they're trying to make outreach to labor. Um, And they will be crucial if we're going to do something like a new Wagner Act, for example. It's a long ways away, but... Because in this country, reform happens in the middle between left and right. Uh, you know, we need those 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 people. But I personally think that the reforming energy will come from the left. I'm surprised by that because I thought that maybe uh, you were going to say that it was going to come from a realignment within the right. It was, you know, you mentioned that uh, you have union voters and even union voters of color uh, supporting Trump. And um, and I wondered if it's just a, is it a marketing thing on the right? Uh, you say social democracy is essentially the same thing as what could be called political exchange capitalism. Is it just renaming the problems that you've been talking about this past hour? So, I, I you know, I prefer the New Deal order. Um, uh, anyway, that's a kind of, a, it's, a, it's a semantic question. Okay. Um, no, the point is, what is the substance of the Republican Party? And I... I, I Having been within it in, yeah. in its spaces for a long time, I've, I've become a little bit pessimistic. I have friends who say, no, 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 hold on, all this stuff is happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I've become a little bit pessimistic, but for individual lawmakers whom I see doing important things. And also I would say that the, that the mere risk of working class people leaving the Democratic Party, not in whole, you know, this can be exaggerated, but the, the the danger that it nevertheless represents can also be a kind of a, a countervailing force on the Democrats to get serious about political economy. And so what I mean by that is then you see movements among someone like Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut, who over the past year or so has become very prominent in terms of talking about uh, the de-alignment between the working class and the Democratic Party, the fact that it's perceived as a party of you know, the upper yeah. professional classes of large segments of Wall Street, Silicon Valley, Hollywood, etc., that he finds that worrisome and is pushing people on his own side to say, well, you know, what are we going to do to prevent that from happening? So that may also be part of the role of the right in this is to just to be an alarm to the center left of what happens when, you know, 
re- reform on the left merely becomes about kind of these boutique lifestyle issues and, and you know. Do you mean sort of, culture wars? Yeah, culture wars. Identity or like, politics. Yeah, but also religion. like the, the, the left is the one, the party that wants you to have like straws that, that melt in your mouth because they're made of paper. You know, I'm not, you, I'm not even <laughs> making a comment on the soundness of, of it as a matter of policy. Okay, the U.S. only contributes like 1% of plastic waste in the world, whatever. But the point is if the left is only there to be like, I'm going to police your straws, you know, or kind of lecture you on, on cultural issues and not, I'm not, but I'm not going to deliver, you know, higher pay. Um, that's going to be a problem. Now I actually, I'm actually pretty optimistic about, uh, elements of the Biden economy, you know, okay. You may not like every element of the, the, the inflation reduction act and certainly not its name is clearly inapt, but you know, Green energy is actually a wave of the future, and we should be investing in that. I would I would peg in those investments to uh, states that that reform their labor laws, not just give put put this money in non union states. I think that's a mistake, but that can be corrected. Um, the Chips mm-hmm. Act, etc. All this is this is good stuff, and so uh, again, it goes back to my point about why I feel like. I'm pushing on a half open door and that there may be a new center Mm. forming. I'm just skeptical about how much the right will contribute to that, but for a few lawmakers whom I personally admire. If there is going to be a realignment that is not just within Mm -hmm. the parties, but across the parties from um, those who are focused on improving Mm -hmm. the the liberty of workers, um, the the freedom of people who are in uh, precarious financial uncertain situations and a level of uncertainty that fundamentally diminishes their mm-hmm. freedom to do good, as you say, or their freedom, as Hannah Rent might say, to come together and say, what should we do? Give us some signs of mm-hmm. hope in terms of that alignment. You mentioned Chris Murphy, who has been really interesting to me over the last year, and I've just sort of been watching from a distance, but I see him doing some really interesting forms, not just of policy outreach, Mm -hmm. but cultural outreach. In your explorations over the last few years, I just think you've probably learned some things about how people who have profoundly different social commitments that are deeply felt, deeply felt different social commitments around abortion, deeply felt different social commitments around questions that may or may not relate to questions of faith. Where and how have you seen a real, meaningful, continuous, strategic alignment mm-hmm. across those different commitments? So, yeah, I mean, I, I could give you so many examples, but um, you know, it's partly the work that I do at Compact Magazine, which, as you know, publishes people of the left and the right. And it's a very kind of unusual endeavor in that regard. We publish everyone from Slavoj Žižek, um, to someone like Christopher Caldwell, uh, who's associated with Claremont, and trying to, you know, it, it, it may, that may sound like you're just creating a cacophony, but we do have a line, and the line is um, this idea that it is possible to create a new center, and it's not win-win for everyone, but it's win enough. So you can conceive of, uh, you know, discrete proposals that I think could be fairly low-hanging fruit. So, for example, someone like um, rep- like Representative Rokana and many others on the left 
um, want to see, uh, you know, uni- universal childcare um, federally provided, right? And um, and this goes back to Julie's initial uh, question on on uh, you know the precarious service industry workers. You know, could that be solved by some amount of social policy? And, and so, yes, it could. Uh, but you know what people on the right might be wary of is you know marketizing more of life. So if you if you you know provide that um, service, are you not just saying well? Typically, women, but not just women, will people who have been staying home will now be encouraged to enter the market, and that's good for our GDP. But is it really good for family life? However, if you can marry the Kana proposal or the general proposal for federal uh, childcare, you can marry it to with subsidies for stay-at-home parents. No, I use parents, mm-hmm. not stay-at-home moms. So, you know, to subsidize that labor essentially that 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 people provide. Um, mm-hmm. then you can have a deal, right? Uh, you can have it's and, and uh, the way I always say it is it's a good enough deal. It's not win-win, but it's win enough. You know, uh, people who are have this kind of traditional conception of like a one, you know, a, a, and this is married to obviously raising wages both through minimum wages and unionization. But the point is they have this conception that one wage should be enough to make a household work. Okay, fine, and then like you know. The, uh, the 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 child the federal childcare comes into the picture, but for other people who have a different lifestyle, that's also subsidized, and so you get you get kind of win 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 enough, I should say. This kind of conversation works. Is it fair to say that I hear it working on particular proposals? So uh, it's interesting because I was asking a different kind of question, which, um, and, I, and I really appreciate your answer. Your answer was. You find those areas of in law concrete things it. in concrete things. So it is fundamentally a profoundly plural model of a secular state mm-hmm. with strong communities that can bargain with each other. Yep, you could call it. Um, you know, in American discourse, saying corporatism is bad for two reasons. One is it evokes like a specific Iberian experience of anti-democratic <laughs> dictatorial corporatism. And also lots of people think corporatism means something like corporatocracy, rule by yeah. corporations. But yeah, we're like actually European talk- style corporatism. Democratic works, works councils. councils, churches, unions, they each have their own sort of internal inner integrity and autonomy, but they exist within this state that allows them to bargain with each other. You know, again, I hate to say the New Deal, New Deal, New Deal, but like FDR got this too in his in his own way. The result for me is the result of lots of thinking and, and sort of reporting and reading about this. And then also of, of the experience of the past two years in my life of trying to bring really, really different people around the table, you know, like really, really, really progressive people and some really, really conservative people and say, can we agree on wages? And you're <laughs> suggesting they don't even need to agree. They don't yes. need to agree. It's it's to give and take. Yeah, exactly. But I think what you do need is trust because win enough, you'll, you're willing to win enough as long as the other side isn't going to take too much. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the problem in our politics is that people don't think that if they just settle for enough, uh, the other side will also settle for enough. You know, I think I think the trust has broken down between the left and the right. But a kind of trust building exercise is possible between these more populist pro-worker or would-be pro-worker Republican lawmakers 
and the labor movement. To give you an example, the labor movement does really great. It is famous for workforce development and apprenticeships. Okay, the best in the world in some ways. And this capacity is underutilized, especially at a time when we want to say, hey, we want to build semiconductors domestically. That takes training. So you have, and, and to provide, for example, a, a one universal certificate for workers for semiconductor manufacturing, which they can take, for example, across state lines or across manufacturers, let's say as example. If you want to do that in New York, you can do that in Syracuse, let's say. If you want to do it in Ohio, you run into a red state that is hostile to labor unions. But if you get a, a, a populist senator in Washington to, put, to go back to his home state and put his thumb on the scale of allowing labor unions to enter workforce development in a red state, that's a win for, 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 for the labor union. On the other side, what, is, what does he typically want? He wants a better score, a congressional score, or the ability of a local to endorse him, even if the national brotherhood is, is not, not going to endorse him. Those are things that union politics can kind of work, right? You know, like, you know, not to name names, but they can say, hey, like, okay, if the, if the local in XYZ county or whatever state wants to endorse so-and-so lawmaker, even if it's not if it's not aligned with the nationals endorsement for XYZ election, that can do that. And then, then you have a small trade. The worldviews of, for example, uh, XYZ union leader and XYZ senator will not have been reconciled together. Of course, they have profound disagreements, but they both walked away with a little win. You got the workforce, de- de- workforce development in a red state and, and, and a little bit of an easier relationship, you know, uh, in terms of in the interface between the local and the national labor union and political endorsements. Wow. So we've got both a radical realignment and lots of small, <laughs> small plausible bargains and somewhere in between something magical can happen. But thank you for leaving us with, um, with this hope. It's been a fascinating conversation. Yeah. Thank you so much, Saurabh. Uh, it's been really great. And I just encourage you to keep going uh, with bringing all of uh, the different actors to the table and um, and with all that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you both. We'd also like to thank Fordham Law School, especially Dean Matthew Diller and Associate Deans Joe Landau and Jay Lee for supporting the podcast. We're very grateful for our helpful producers, Melody Rowell and Bill Pollock at Yellow Armadillo Studios. The music for Democracy's Future is Climbing by Chad Crouch, also known as Poddington Bear. Special thanks to Rob Yasharian at Fordham Law School for designing our new logo. Please subscribe to Democracy's Future. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, Simplecast, and really wherever you get your podcasts. Spread the word to your students, your neighbors, and fellow commuters about Democracy's Future. Thank you very much, and see you next time.